Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you now, we are doing so, recognizing the fact that we are able to call you Father because of this event that we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were formerly estranged from you because Jesus died and was raised, we've been reconciled and adopted by you, creator of all things, to not just, not just reconciled, but brought into your family so that we call you Father. We praise you for these things, and we praise you for this occasion to rehearse the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that for those of us who know Jesus and have loved him, that we would love him evermore because of the things that we'll consider in the Word this morning. We pray especially for those this morning who may not know Him, that Your Word would come powerfully, that Your Holy Spirit would have His way in them, and that they would be moved to see truth and follow Jesus in faith this morning. And so... Lord, let this Resurrection Sunday be their first day of life in Christ. We pray these things with great boldness because we serve a risen King. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, please. Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We will be working our way through Matthew 27, verse 57, through the end of the book. I'd like to begin this morning by just reading a portion of that, 27, 57 through 28, 10. So as you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me out of respect for the Word of God, and we'll begin reading there in 27, 57, Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day of, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make the tomb as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. Come see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and and great joy and ran to tell His disciples And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see Me. Please be seated. We have just read about the greatest Sunday in history. And this, today, is the greatest Sunday of the year. As Pastor John mentioned as we opened this morning, here, here at Providence, we, we sing about and celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, but that this Sunday is a special commemoration of, of the resurrection because it's something like an anniversary. This is the Sunday that, that concludes the Passover. And our Passover lamb has been slain, but raised from the dead. And a large majority of our neighbors and friends agree that that is true. So Rasmussen just released a poll recently where they found that upwards of 70% of Americans agree that Jesus was the Son of God, that He died for sins, and that He was raised from the dead. That may be so striking that I need to repeat it. Rasmussen found recently that 70% of Americans believe that Jesus was the Son of God, He died for sins, and that He was raised from the dead. Now, 100% of the people in this passage, particularly in chapter 28, 100% of them believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, including the chief priests, the Pharisees and the Roman soldiers, we'll find that only a relatively small number followed Jesus, acknowledging the historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead does, does not make one a follower of Jesus. It does not mean that one knows Jesus, that one has the life that he gives. The question is, how does one respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And this text is going to show us contrasting responses to what we call the the good news. There are two groups here that 
that both see the good news is true, but their responses are completely different. And the differences of those responses are the difference between life and death. Life and death. And we see those two responses as they come in response to Jesus, death and life. So we'll look at those in in their order. First of all, we see two responses to Jesus' death, beginning there at the end of chapter 27. In those first verses that we read, verses 57 through 66, Jesus has just died, and we see two groups going to Pilate to ask for permission to do a particular task unique to those two groups. Pilate gives both permission, and both of those groups go and they do their task. The first is a task of devotion, and so that's the first response that we find to the death of Jesus Christ, devotion. So Joseph of Arimathea is described here as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Those of us here at Providence who are here every week, we've been studying Mark in our times together on Sunday mornings. And we know that if, if Joseph is described as a disciple, that means that he has repented and followed Jesus in faith. He's trusted Jesus To save him from the wrath to come, he surrendered his life to Jesus. Now, why would Joseph need to repent and trust in Jesus? Well, it's because Joseph, like all people everywhere, including you and I, Joseph was a sinner. And Joseph, like all of us, we all deserve deserve the wrath of God for our sin, for our, our many rebellious acts against him. But God planned from eternity past to send His Son, His Son to die in the place of Joseph and countless others, and thereby demonstrate His own glorious excellencies by standing in the place of sinners, dying for their sin, so that they might be freed from the power, the penalty, and eventually even the presence of sin. And all those who repent, that is, all those who turn away from their sin, turn away from their own sinful trajectory and turn toward Jesus in faith, surrendering their lives to Him, they don't receive eternal wrath, but rather they receive eternal life. They're no longer estranged from God, but rather they are adopted by God. They're no longer dead in sin, but rather they're alive in Christ. That's true of Joseph here because he's, he's described as a disciple of Jesus. And, and Joseph has publicly now aligned himself with the Lord Jesus because he's, he's done what we would consider the, the act of a very close family member for Jesus. He's taken the body of Jesus and he's giving it a proper burial. And that he would give Jesus his own tomb indicates an intimacy with and affection for Jesus that could not be mistaken by anyone around. Joseph is something of a a picture of discipleship for us. He is saying to everyone around him, I am with Jesus. Devotion. We could say also that the presence of the two Marys is, is another picture of devotion. These two women, unlike the other disciples, unlike the eleven, they have stayed with Jesus through everything. They followed Him all throughout Galilee. 
They followed him to Jerusalem, even as Jesus was repeatedly saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, there I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the, of the Jews and the Romans, I will die and I'll be raised from the dead. They followed him as he was saying all of those things, they watched those things happen to him, now they have seen Joseph of Arimathea take him down from the cross and put him in the tomb, they followed all the way. And that's another great picture of discipleship and the devotion that is characteristic of discipleship. That is, they have followed Jesus everywhere He goes. Devotion. Following Jesus everywhere He goes. It's the first picture of, of a response to the death of Jesus. But then we find a, a different response to the death of Jesus, and that is contempt. Contempt. And we see that on the part of the chief priests and Pharisees. So look with me again at verse 62. The text says, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. There's a couple of things that we can glean here from, from these couple of verses. And the first is that we, we want to note that Pilate, they, they call Pilate something that they never called Jesus. And that is, the, that word for sir is, is the Greek word kurios. Which, which everywhere else in Matthew is translated Lord. Everywhere in Matthew that the word kurios is found, it refers to Jesus except right here. The, the Pharisees called Pilate Lord, but not Jesus. What do they call Jesus? That imposter. Another way of, of translating would be, this would be that deceiver. They're calling him a deceiver, which is quite ironic, both given what happens in 28, Jesus is going to be proven to be true, but they end up being the deceivers in, in chapter 28. They call him a deceiver. What deplorable contempt heaped upon the Lord of glory. But a second thing that we can glean from these two verses is that they obviously understood what Jesus meant when he said numerous times in his ministry that he would be raised from the dead. They understood him. Now they want to prevent anyone from thinking that that is true. And so, look with me again at verse 64. They say again to Pilate, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead! And the last fraud will be worse than the first. They're calling Jesus a fraud. Jesus is the first fraud. And now this idea that He would be risen from the dead, that's, that's the last fraud. And they want to prevent that fraud from happening. In their minds, they just got rid of Jesus. And now they, they don't want anything to happen that might, might allow people to continue to follow this Jesus charade, this fraud. So they want the guard to keep the disciples out. The guard that, the, that Pilate grants them in verse 65 is a Roman guard. These guards were typically tasked with guarding the Jewish temple. So what Pilate is saying is, take these guys that already guard your temple and do with them what you want. Send them to the tomb and just make it as secure as, as you would like. And so, those Roman soldiers, they're posted as guards. The tomb is sealed. And so now, everybody knows, nobody is getting into that tomb without the soldiers' consent. Nobody's getting in. Of course, what they should have been worried about is somebody getting out, right? You can, you can feel how much they, they hate Jesus. He's just suffered the worst death, death imaginable. Now they, they just want to destroy His memory. 
prevent any way that people could, could spread his message. That's contempt. So we have two responses to Jesus' death. Devotion and contempt. But, but, but Jesus is, has not even risen from the dead in this text. And we might think, well, surely when he rises from the dead, and everybody's going to turn and follow him, right? You, uh, you, don't, you don't see that every day. Somebody dead, known to be dead, and now he's alive. Surely everyone who, who, who knows that that has happened, surely everyone then is going to follow him. Well, we see in chapter 28, still two responses. Two responses. Before we get to those two responses, look at the resurrection itself with me beginning at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So it's Sunday morning. We have those same two Marys. They're continuing their devotion to the Lord. Not only seeing Him be, be entombed, but now they're going back three days later to the tomb. They've witnessed the burial of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ. And now, because of their devotion to the Lord, their unique devotion to the Lord, they will have front row seats to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now the guards are supposed to be an, an intimidating presence here. They're supposed to be intimidating people. But having been tasked with guarding a dead man, now they're so terrified that they become like dead men. Unable to move, unable to speak, they're petrified. Of course, the angel isn't intimidated by them. He didn't even seem to recognize their presence. He never acknowledges them in this text. Also notice that the, the guards, they didn't move to arrest the angel. They have one job here, right? Secure that tomb. Don't let anybody into that tomb. He just rolls that stone away and sits on it. And they just watch. Apparently, securing the tomb kind of fell to the bottom of their to-do list. It's all about survival at this point. What does that tell us? That They don't do anything. They just watch. It tells us they have seen something that is real. They, they, they believe it to be real. They are having a physiological response to something that they have seen. They're not delusional. Something outrageous has happened right in front of them and they know it. Now, verse 5, that the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Now, the, the text goes straight from describing the terror of, of the guards to the angel saying to the women, do not be afraid. So he doesn't care about the guards, apparently. They can and perhaps should be afraid. But the beloved of Christ have nothing to worry about. Jesus has been risen from the dead. Now, if the guards were terrified, it makes sense that the women would be terrified too. They, they were there. They witnessed the, the earthquake. This unbelievably magnificent being coming down from the sky and rolling away the stone. They saw all of that too. It makes sense that they would be in shock as well. So as they heard those words, He is risen. He is not here. How do you even process that information? Especially these two women giving all that they'd seen. 
And he invited them then to go and see. The tomb is empty. You know, in, in, in stunning circumstances like that, it takes, it takes several seconds for the human brain to catch up with what it's seeing and what it's hearing. Yes, we are, we are looking for Jesus. He was crucified. We saw it. We saw Him breathe His last. We saw all of the suffering. We watched Joseph take Him down from the cross. We saw Joseph put Him in the tomb and roll the stone over it. We watched all of that. And He's not here. What does that even mean? The tomb is empty. Why is the, why is the tomb empty? All of these things happening very quickly. And as their minds are catching up, the angel gives them a mission in verse 7. It says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So the women do that, verse 8. So they depart quickly. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see Me. And here we see the first of, of two responses to the resurrection of Jesus, which is worship. Worship. You know, if, if these two women understood even half of the theological significance of a crucified Jesus now standing alive in front of them, it is no wonder that they grabbed His feet and worshipped Him. Let, let me give you just three, just three reasons why this is the most significant thing that has ever happened. Three reasons. The first is that a, a risen Christ demonstrates Jesus' victory over sin and death. It proves Jesus' victory over sin and death. shows Jesus has accomplished salvation. It's a wonderful portion of, of the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 through 10, where the author is showing how Jesus is superior to those Old Testament institutions. And the author calls our attention back to the Old Testament and, and reminds us that the priests under the old sacrificial system, they stood daily constantly offering sacrifices over and over, year after year. Why did they do that? Because those sacrifices were ineffective. They could not take away sin. But the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 and verse 12, when Christ offered once for all a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Why did He sit down? Because His work was finished. And the resurrection was a signal to all creation that the Father had accepted Christ's payment for sins as sufficient. That, that Christ rose, demonstrated that Jesus was victorious over sin and death. And every day, but especially on a day like today, we need to make sure that we're, we're thinking of this not in terms of generic sin and death, but of personal sin and death. Your sin, your death, my sin, my death. My heart that rebelled against Him from the time that I was born until now. 
My heart and all the things that I've done against him. Your rebellious heart that, that, that is breathed rebellion against him. And all the things that you have done to offend him. Defeated. Your death that you earned by all of that. That, that eternity under the wrath of, of an almighty God. Defeated. Gone. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. That is good news, is it not? That good news? That's just one reason why the resurrection is significant. The second reason is that the resurrection proves the identity of Jesus. Jesus made some pretty outrageous claims like, I am one with the Father. If you look at me, you have seen the Father. Well, Paul writes in Romans 1.24 that it was by the resurrection from the dead that the Spirit declared Jesus to be the Son of God. The resurrection proves the identity of Jesus because His identity is precisely why He was raised. Peter says in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, it was impossible for Him to be held by death. Why? Because He is God. And so instantly the empty tomb says, Jesus is God and everything that He said is true. And an implication of that for you and I is that Jesus can be trusted. And oh, that is good news, right? There's two reasons that the resurrection is significant. A third reason is that a risen Christ grounds the great hope of all who follow Him. It grounds the great hope of all who follow Him. Now, biblical hope is a confident expectation of a certain future. It's a confident expectation of a certain future. In other words, because Christ has been risen from the dead, we know what our future holds. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 and following, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep, he's talking about Christians who have already died, those who've fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. It's over for them. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, Paul wrote what he wrote there because he rightly connected the Lord's resurrection to our future resurrection. That Christ was raised from the dead ensures that one day we will be raised from the dead on the last day. If Christ hadn't been raised, we would have hope only in this life and that hope would die when we die. We would just stay dead. There would be nothing waiting for us after this life. But that's why Paul writes in the following verses, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What he means by that first fruits is he's just the beginning. He's just the first one. There's going to be many following Him because He has been raised from the dead. All those in Christ will be raised from the dead. That empty tomb means that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He defeated that sin and death so thoroughly that no one who follows Jesus dies forever. He he or she merely falls asleep until that last day when the bodies of all those who are in Christ are raised imperishable. Jesus' body, His physical body was raised from the dead. One day our physical bodies, they'll be raised from the dead and we will live with Him eternally on the new earth. All that is what we call good news. Good news. The risen Christ, He demonstrates that sin and death has been defeated. It proves His identity 
as Christ and it grounds the great hope of all those who follow Him. Now these ladies, they may not have put all of that together in these brief moments after seeing Jesus, but the apostles have put all that together for us and it is quite appropriate for us to consider those things as we, as we read this text. This is not just another miracle, the resurrection. This is not just another walking on water. The resurrection is altogether different. This is everything to the Christian faith. And the appropriate response is worship. And so if, you're, if, you, if you hang around this, this church much at all, you'll, you'll, you'll see that awareness, that, that awareness of the significance of the re- resurrection, particularly in our formal worship. We, we tend to get a bit worked up around here and when we're singing, especially when we get to those lyrics about the resurrection of Jesus Christ or our seeing Him coming in the clouds and, and our being raised to meet Him. That's, that's when our, our hand raisers, we get a little agitated when we start to sing about Jesus being raised from the dead because we know everything that means. And so these women, they rightfully worshipped Him. Rightfully worshipped Him, falling at His feet in adoration. But you know, there's more to worship than, than adoration or what, what we might think of as formal worship, what we do here on Sundays. And we'll find out what that is as the text proceeds when these women obey the angel's command and Jesus' command to go and tell the disciples. We're going to skip verses 11-15 through 15 for now. We'll come back to them later. But jump down to verse 16. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. So the disciples, the eleven, they too worshipped. Now this text here mentions that some doubted. And I won't, I won't take time to consider that right now just for the sake of time, but Lord willing, I'll put something on the website this week about that. But what is worship? What is worship? The beginning of Romans chapter 12 suggests that worship is more than what we do here formally on Sunday mornings. It's, it's more than our, our praying together and reading the Scriptures together and singing and fellowship and listening to the Word preached. Certainly all of that qualifies as worship and, and we would refer to it as formal worship. But in Romans 12... Paul begins to teach that worship additionally is is a lifestyle of living for Christ. Everything that we do out of obedience is a sacrifice of worship. In fact, we find that idea repeated over and over in the New Testament in words like, everything that you do, do all to the glory of the Lord. And and if we, we look at this context in Matthew 28, we would find that worship would certainly include obedience to the last command that Jesus gave, which we find beginning in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We don't, we don't have time to develop those verses much at all. But here Jesus calls His disciples to do just what He's been doing. And that is making disciples. And so that is what they do. That is what we do as an act of worship. We lay down our lives in humble submission to His mission. 
We give our lives as living sacrifices to the spreading of the good news. And we know that the disciples worshipped Jesus in that way because we have the book of Acts that tells us that's what they do. They did. And we have the epistles testifying to that as well. Worship, that is, that is one response to the resurrection of Jesus. But the text also shows us a second response. That response is resistance. Resistance. Go with me back to verse 11 now. While they were going, again he's talking about the two Marys. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the guards went into the city and they told them, they, they, they told the chief priests what? The text, the text says, all that had taken place. In other words, the earthquake, angel descending from heaven, stone being rolled away. What the angel is wearing, he's, he's, his appearance of lightning and, and clothing white as snow. And empty tomb. And because the Jews and the Romans had made it certain that the disciples didn't take Him, what do they all know has happened? They all know that Jesus has been risen from the dead. He has been raised. And so now you would think that this news would lead them to to believe, to follow Jesus. But they don't. And that also proves that everything Jesus says is true. Because in Luke 16.31, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone should rise from the dead. There are Resurrection Sunday sermons being preached all over the globe this morning, and, and many of them will will focus on the evidence of the resurrection. That is, how we can know that this is a historical fact. We, we can know that this happened. And there, there's plenty of evidence for that. I would suggest that the best evidence is the Bible that you're holding in your hands. It says that it happened. But th- there's plenty of, of extra-biblical evidence. And there's nothing wrong with talking about, about all of that. But we do need to be careful not to make the mistake of thinking that if we can just convince somebody who's skeptical about the resurrection, if we can just convince them that this is an actual historical fact, this actually happened, well then they'll gladly follow Jesus. Some will, but many won't. And that is a point of this text. Everyone in Matthew 28, everyone knows Jesus was raised from the dead. No one questions it. Only some followed him. The Jews know he was raised, but they, they resisted him. They, they refused to turn from their sin and follow. And not only that, but they want to prevent others from following him. And that, that's, that's, an, that's a crazy level of resistance. Not only am I not going to follow him, I want to prevent everyone else from doing it. 
Now here's something that is really remarkable and ironic. The Jews wanted the guards stationed at the tomb to prevent the disciples from stealing Jesus' body and deceiving everyone into believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, now he has been raised from the dead. And ironically, they deceive everyone into believing that the disciples did steal the body. So, so strong is their resistance to Jesus that, that they started a lie claiming that what they wanted to prevent from happening has now happened. To accomplish that, they've paid the soldiers to lie. And, and they promised to smooth things over with Pilate if necessary. And the soldiers took the bribe. So not only do we have the, the extraordinary resistance of the Jews, but we have, we have what we might think of as a softer resistance from the soldiers. Money was more important to them than the truth. Things of the earth more important than following the Lord of glory. They know, they know better than anyone. These soldiers, they know better than the Jews that this happened because they saw it with their own eyes. They know Jesus is alive. He is who He said. But they refuse to follow. They resist. They deny the truth. They perpetuate the lie. So the Jews and the Romans, they have different motives but they both respond to Jesus with resistance. And again, it's, it's remarkable given the miraculous nature of what they know to have taken place. Now, very quickly as we, as we close, turn with me back to Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. twelve thirty-eight. Matthew 12, 38. This passage comes shortly after the Pharisees began to plot together to destroy Jesus. Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath and they just couldn't stand that kind of thing. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back. They decided we're going to kill this guy. Very shortly after that, we read in Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation And condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Implying, look, if you'll just show us a sign, we'll believe, we'll follow you. Well, now they have received the sign of Jonah. The the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And they have still resisted. They've still resisted. As Jesus indicates here, they will be condemned for this. The men of Nineveh, they repented at a lesser, a lesser form of revelation. There is no greater form of revelation than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For someone who acknowledges that the resurrection took place and then they don't follow Jesus... There there is nothing else. And someone who turns away from that, they will be condemned. Now clearly, clearly, these men, 
They know that it happened. They believe in the, in the sense that they acknowledge it to be historical fact. They're bribing the guards, proves it, but they have not believed in the John 3.16 sense. They have not believed in the, the Mark 1.16 sense. They have not followed Jesus in faith, giving their lives to Him. They have not believed in that sense, and for that reason they'll be condemned. There's, there's only two responses to the death of Jesus, devotion and contempt. There's only two responses to the resurrection of Jesus, worship and resistance. All know the truth of these things. That's not the question. There's only two ways to go. And again, those two ways are not denying the death and resurrection of Christ and acknowledging the death and resurrection of Christ. Psalm 53 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Similarly, the fool says in his heart that Jesus, wasn't, Jesus didn't die and, and, and rise again. People who say that that didn't happen, they are delusional. That happened. It isn't the question. It is not the question. The question is, how does one respond to these things? And one way to respond to that is, is to say, I am a sinner whose repeated lifelong heart-deep rebellion against God has brought upon me separation from Him, and I am doomed to an eternal burden under His almighty wrath in hell, the worst part of which is that I will never know Him as I was created and designed to know Him. And there is nothing that I can do to remedy that situation. There's nothing that I can do to reverse my condition of estrangement from my Creator. But Jesus died in my place to take the wrath of God for me. His resurrection proves that His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to save me. And so, I turn from my sin and I give my life to Him, acknowledging that I need Him to make me right with God. I need Him to, to rescue me. I want to follow Him and worship Him for all my days and for eternity. That is, that is one response. The other response is to say, all this is true, but I just prefer to go my own way. I like what I'm doing, and I will take my chances on Judgment Day. That is the way of contemptuous resistance, and it is the way that leads to death. And, and I beg you, don't go the way of the chief priests and the scribes and the Roman soldiers who stared a miracle in the face and walked away unchanged. And don't be like the great majority of the people walking around us all the time who recognize the historic reality of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and have not given their lives to Jesus don't go that way. Recognize your desperate need for a Savior. There's only one. There's only one. And His name is Jesus. He died. He was raised. He has already secured salvation. Do not turn away from Him. Rather, repent and follow Him today. If you have any questions about that, there are people all over this room who would be thrilled to talk to you about that. Now, if you're somebody who has followed Jesus, my prayer for you all week long has been that rehearsing these things together would move you to worship the Lord Jesus 
and not just in song and in prayer as we're about to do together, but to worship Him with your life as we leave this place. So let us, let us pray together and now then have a few moments of silent reflection together. Father, it is always the case that when we gather together, we consider things that are exclusively true. We praise you, Lord, that we've had the opportunity this morning to spend time soaking in the greatest of all those truths, that Jesus has not only died, but that he has risen from the dead. We, we praise you, Father, for your great eternal wisdom, your justice, your grace and love and faithfulness, and how all of those things have coalesced in a cross and an empty tomb. And we pray, Lord, that, that there, there would not be a soul leave this place unchanged, that those, who, that those who already know Christ would, would leave with greater affection for Him, a greater desire to worship Him with their lives, that those who, who came here this morning not knowing Jesus, not having surrendered their lives to Him in repentance and faith, that they would leave knowing Jesus, that they would leave here with the life that only He provides, and that they too would go with the rest of us, worshiping Jesus for the rest of their days. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.